Hello! Welcome to the newest podcast produced by Intergentis, the McGill Journal of International Law and Legal Pluralism. My name is Pascal, and today I'll be speaking with Professor Michael Geist, the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, and a faculty member at the Centre for Law, Technology and Society at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Geist is a man of many insights, and for a period in the early 2010s, those insights were focused on a particularly fickle form of international internet and commerce law, the Anti-Counterfeiting Trade Agreement, also known as ACTA. 2023 marks the 10-year anniversary of Canada's ACTA compliance bill, though it's a rather unassuming one, given the multilateral agreement, which hoped to target an increased international rate of counterfeiting and piracy, never actually came into force due to an abysmally low ratification rate. Nevertheless, ACTA has much to teach the curious international legal scholar, particularly on how international agreements are negotiated and why those agreements, even if completed, may ultimately fail. Today, we'll have Dr. Geist break down ACTA's rise, fall, and lessons learned. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us today, Dr. Geist. We really appreciate you taking the time to travel back in time with us, so to speak, to something you dedicated a lot of time critiquing at its apex. I was wondering if you could start by giving us a better sense of which states initially sought to negotiate an agreement like ACTA and the roles they played in it. ACTA started life amongst a few like-minded countries, Japan, the United States, and Europe predominantly were the drivers behind ACTA. And, and their view was that they could come together to create, in effect, a plurilateral agreement that would create a high level of requirements when it came to dealing with anti-counterfeiting issues, although that's pretty broadly defined to cover a pretty wide range of intellectual property-related reforms. Uh, they, along the way, brought together several other countries to, to be part of that, but it was by and large you know, an OECD-style group of countries. So it was by and large the most economically developed countries in the world. You had a, a, a range of countries, and I mean, it's kind of an interesting process to see how this unfolds. So, you know, I mentioned certainly that Japan played a lead role in the United States um, alongside ultimately some of the European countries as well. But you also had Australia, uh, eventually Canada, New Zealand, Singapore, South Korea, and a few countries that you might not have expected. Morocco, for example, was part of it as well. And my recollection is that various countries played different roles, depending on the issue, depending on the different situation, you at times might have uh, a country that that might have issued a non-paper, Canada, for example, uh, sometimes did that on some issues. Other countries might play a, an important role in trying to draft the actual text that would serve as the basis for negotiation. What were these states' expectations for such an agreement? I think their expectation was that they could use that not so much to drive significant change amongst the countries in ACTA, although certainly there were some countries, including Canada, that, that would have seen some significant changes. But their goal was both to, you know, to fill in the gaps amongst various countries as they sought to raise the level of protection. But then also, I think that their ultimate goal would have been to use this agreement as a lever to try to push other countries that weren't part of the negotiations to force them or to encourage them, I suppose, to try to meet the same kinds of standards. And where would you say the negotiation process started to go wrong? Part of my comments here is a little bit speculative because, you know, this the entire process was generally pretty secretive. And that meant that 
those that wanted to know what was going on either had to rely on leaks or accessed information requests or developing a broader network of people who are interested in these issues so that you could, in a sense, talk amongst yourselves and have a better sense of what was happening in New Zealand or what was happening in Australia and potentially use some of those activities to glean what was happening more broadly. And so throughout this process, one of the sources of, I think, frustration for many who were concerned by where this was headed uh, was the fact that so much of this was happening without very much transparency at all. It was by and large happening in secret with you know, periodic updates on the status of negotiations, sometimes efforts by the negotiators, let's say in Canada, they might hold a meeting to say, you know, here's where we stand or here's what, what's been happening. But, you know, much of it was reading tea leaves or relying on leaks or being dependent on government providing information. So that, that kind of secretive process was, was really a hallmark of, of much of the process. Were there certain states who were more inclined towards secrecy than others? Well, I think it was the two that that really had got the whole thing started to begin with. So the United States and Japan, which had been the the, the two leads on this, I think were viewed as as the most secretive, but secretive in different ways. I mean, in the United States, there was no doubt that many in the private sector were gaining access um, on a privileged basis to this information. They might have been required to strike um or to sign on to an NDA or some sort of confidentiality agreement. But, you know, the the tradition or convention, at least in the U.S., of creating some amount of inclusion for the private sector, at least to get their views on certain things, I think was pretty common. But it wasn't just the secrecy aspect that posed a problem, right? The provisions themselves were quite contentious, too. I suppose at a high level, what made ACTA controversial. And then what ultimately, I think, sank it was that while it was described as largely an enforcement agreement, it was pretty clear that many of the provisions quite clearly bled into substantive law, right? So the the, the proponents of this kept saying, you know, don't worry, this is strictly about an enforcement system, right? I mean, it was it was about count. First, they would say it's strictly about counterfeiting. Secondly, they were saying it's primarily about dealing with enforcement. And I think what you found quite quickly as you as you started working through the implications of the agreement was that in fact it wasn't limited as strongly in that regard. That the the enforcement measures would begin to move into criminal related provisions. It would obviously um, touch on a range of other kinds of issues. And even with respect to some of the powers with respect, when it came up to copyright or some of the other elements of IP, you were starting to get into substantive related questions. And, you know, I think that is at least part of what sparked some of the concern, although that alone would be unlikely to drive thousands or hundreds of thousands, as the case was in some some places in Europe, to, to take to the streets once the agreement uh, was actually finalized. How did this play into concerns about internet regulation? Well, I think you have to bear in mind that, you know, when you're talking about, especially a treaty like this, typically it's it's higher level type um, provisions that you that you would often find, right? So um, it's not always necessarily the that it, it gets in the nitty gritty. Some of it comes down to how might this be in, interpreted? But, you know, for example, you had an article specific on enforcement in the digital environment. And 
This spoke to taking acts against um, acts of intellectual property infringement in the digital environment. And so there is this sense that there's the prospect of cutting people off from their internet access, because back then that was uh, a possibility. There had been a number of countries that experimented with literally stopping people from being able to access the internet if they were found to have been repeat infringers. Um, There was concern that that the private sector would play an increasing role from an enforcement perspective. So it wasn't just the uh, judicial, you know, just enforcement agencies, and sometimes not even with judicial frameworks involved, but rather there might be the power to, you know, take down content or remove certain kinds of activities without the kind of due process that one might otherwise expect. So, so a lot of it was tied to, at the time, a lot of focus on on what people saw as fundamental freedoms. The internet certainly at that time was viewed as as enabling speech in ways that um, you know few technologies, certainly no technologies in recent memory and few in history had. And I think a sense that somehow this was a bit of a backlash against that. And there was a desire to, at a minimum, ensure that there was appropriate safeguards and protections. And, I, you know, I, I when sometimes would get the sense that there was a, a lack of proportionality or the risk of a lack of proportionality as to how some of this might be interpreted. Um, obviously, there were many that said, oh, you've got nothing to worry about. This isn't going to address these issues, or at least that's not our intent. But the fear was that there was certainly room to interpret these in ways that would affect everyday everyday people. And, you know, I think that part of what drove the, the concerns was not just the language in the agreement, but then the experience over the prior decade where People had come through file sharing lawsuits where thousands of people had been sued for infringing activity related to using file sharing services like Napster and the like. You saw efforts to uh, establish the not- what was called at the time notice and termination to try to terminate people's internet access. And so I think that it's important to recognize that the, the fears of how all of these provisions could have been interpreted were framed at least in part on the real world experience of of how the same groups and entities that had lobbied for ACTA had been lobbying for sort of tangential or other related kinds of legislation and using it very aggressively in some countries. And where did the low ratification rate come from? I think the low ratification rate comes largely from the outcry in Europe that sank the deal. So to think back to to all these different issues as they were playing out. And, you know, the agreement gets signed. There's a lot of questions about some of the substance and concerns about where this agreement is heading. And a lot of pressure being brought on various countries to move ahead with ACTA, despite some of the outcry and despite some of the concerns. But you started to see, especially in Europe, which had the effect of, if not a veto, pretty close to a veto, just given the sheer numbers of countries that uh, were member states, that if there wasn't agreement on this, that the thing that it, it might well sink. And, you know, you had a process in Europe where it needed approval of both the count, the European Council, as well as the European Parliament. And while the council was representative of various governments, and there were a number of governments that were in opposition to it, once it moved to the European Parliament, that's where you began to see 
um, some really interesting dynamics take place. You know, there was an active debate on the implications of all of this, whether or not the parliament ought to sign on or not. And um, and then ultimately in, in 2012, the members of the European Parliament strongly rejected it. At the end of the day, ACTA uh, was more closely aligned with fundamental freedoms. There were concerns about that. And now uh, the parliament vote was ultimately, I think, what sank this more than more than anything else. I was also curious about how regulation in this area has changed since Canada signed ACTA in 2013. You know, I've, I've made reference a couple of times to the TPP as, as I was recounting some of the history. And it does seem to me that, the you know, that once ACTA died, the TPP sort of became the child of ACTA in some ways and became sort of the next the next battleground, as it were, and the next place, some of the same kinds of provisions began to reappear. Uh, I also think that we have seen some of these same kinds of issues, you know, pop up in trade agreements, the whether regionally or at the WTO. So happens in a whole range of of different places. So it's not that these issues, I don't think, have have gone away. They, in some ways, have stayed. They've also of course, become part of some of the bilateral pressures that exist. For example, the USTR, the U.S. Trade Representative Office, puts out an annual Special 301 report in which that, which is used to, in a sense, kind of name and shame different countries that they argue aren't doing enough to uh, protect intellectual property. So in some ways, some of the same battles are still being fought. Uh, there are, I think, though, a couple of differences as we, as I think through this. One is that the, you know, the, the, I guess the prioritization of, of, you know, what matters has changed a bit. Um, that's not to say that IP enforcement um, isn't still a big issue for a lot of entities. I think it still is. Uh, but the emergence of the large internet platforms have become uh, in some ways a more pronounced issue, uh, certainly for governments it has. So many governments have been now more focused on platform regulation, uh, the harms that they think uh, are concerned that are arising from social media, um, algorithmic bias. I mean, there's a whole series of issues, of course, that um, are now capturing a lot of attention. Data-related issues would be a, a core part of that as well. So so I think in some ways, it's not that things moved on, but other issues have really have gradually emerged as as big ones. The other thing that I think took place is that, especially with respect to some of the IP related issues, in some ways, the the market evolved. And, you know, it, it will be hard for, say, a, a generation of people who can scarcely remember a time when there wasn't a Netflix or um, a YouTube or some of the other kinds of streaming services that are Spotify services that are out there. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the grounding for some of these debates took place at a time when these did not exist. And, um, you know, part of the the argument, even from those against, from the, especially from those against the legislation was, you know, since give this a bit of time that, you know, that rather than trying to impose very strict legal rules, you're better off allowing the market to develop different kinds of solutions so that rather than sue, in a sense, the line often was, you know, don't sue your customer, find a way to make them your customer by offering up a service that is as that is equally convenient, that is affordable, um, that offers up some of the benefits of what um, is otherwise available. And, and rather than turning to piracy, they will become your customer. And I think that worked. And so that many of these issues have, I think, gone away. This might be a good place to bring things home, so to speak. 
Can you think of anything happening in Canada right now that speaks to some of the issues you mentioned? I think there is a risk, quite frankly, that some of the proposals we see in Canada right now, let's say around Bill C-11, is such that we may see some streaming services that decide to block the Canadian market based on some of the regulations they're facing. And then you're right back to where you were, where suddenly now this content isn't available on a reasonable, affordable, in a reasonable, affordable manner. And suddenly you start finding consumers then perhaps again turning to different forms of piracy as a mechanism to access it. So in some ways we haven't learned all those lessons, but uh, I do think, you know, in some ways, some of those issues are still there. There's still the special 301. There's still the secrecy of negotiations. We've seen much of this move towards bilateral discussions or work at the WTO uh, and as well as certain new emerging digital trade agreements. But what we've also seen is that some of the issues themselves have changed partly because different kinds of concerns have emerged and partially because some of these issues are perhaps not as big an issue when you've got services that hundreds of millions of subscribers worldwide. That was something that just didn't exist at that time. And do you think there would ever be a willingness for an ACTA 2.0? Yeah, I I must admit, I, I, I don't see uh, ACTA rising from the dead anytime soon, um, which is, I guess, just fine with me. Um, but I think that in part, you know, even proponents of ACTA would say that they too have moved on and they found other mechanisms to either promote their their interests or um, their their issues have also changed over time. So um, I, I think it's unlikely that that we would see that recreated in that way. I also think that it would be harder in the current environment to uh, to to muster the same kind of opposition that we saw in Europe back then. That's not to say that these issues aren't still extremely important to people. We're seeing it right now uh, as some of the Canadian legislation plays out and people aren't taking to the streets over it. But uh, it's clear that there are an awful lot of people that are concerned about it here in Canada. So I don't think that some of the fundamental concerns around overly restrictive enforcement, its implications for expression online have changed all that much. But um you know, I guess even just from a purely practical perspective, I think it's unlikely that we would see many uh, countries or or stakeholders say that, you know, the, their energy is best placed trying to revive a 10-year-old treaty that died. I mean, in some ways, they they would probably go back and take a look and say that even some of the provisions themselves would need updating before they would get fully behind it. Well, I've reached the end of my question line here, Dr. Geist. But just to wrap up, What's the biggest takeaway from the failure that is ACTA? Yeah, it's a fun question to to think about in hindsight. Uh, you know, I I wish I could say that it was that you know people will take to the take to the streets over their fundamental freedoms, uh, and certainly some people will. But but I think I I would recognize that you know that that's not always going to happen, and uh, that there was an element of the moment there. Um, I think, you know, if I, I, you know, trying to look at it as dispassionately as I can, as someone who was pretty engaged and involved, I frankly think it was the secrecy associated with it that, that probably more than anything sunk this. And, you know, in some ways, I find it inexplicable that governments, including our government, including this government, which I think in recent years has adopted some of the very worst habits of the prior Harper government which was the government at the time, of course, of ACTA, and was associated with a lot of the secrecy. And uh, this government has leaned in that same direction. 
and you know is not great when it comes to access to information has not always been great on some of these negotiations or some of the other activities that have take place and has become very defensive about some of its plans and very aggressive against critics who would dare to criticize and you know i i my i guess my my lesson from all of this is that uh, that i think that's a mistake that i think you know that when you adopt an approach as acta did with a lot of secrecy uh, with, but with some occasional leaks if the public becomes sufficiently aware of it that they start they starting having some amount of interest they start reading what they can if there's a void of information out there it's going to be filled by the people who are speaking out on it if that's the critics it's going to be filled by the critics who are going to rely upon whatever information they have and so i've often thought that both with acta and with some of the other agreements that the governments would have done far better to have been far more aggressively open about what's taking place. You know, I always thought that, you know, if they thought that this was truly a great agreement that the public would get behind, why keep it so secret? <laughs> um, and in a sense, leave it to the critics to explain why it wasn't a great deal and why there ought to be concerns about it. And so I think we see some of that same approach still, still coming up today where, there is, for whatever reason, an inclination in governments to oftentimes keep things as secret as possible, and you know, think of think of these agreements or these provisions as as, as basically communications exercises where they've got to find ways to market it once it's a done deal, and I think that's a mistake. And in fact, one of the frustrations with how those processes would work would often be that you know, if you took the approach that you can only comment on it at the end of the day once you've already reached agreement then it becomes too late i i can recall on tpp for example there were leaks of tpp as well and i remember appearing before one house of commons committee expressing concern and it was under the conservative government at the time and the conservative mps would respond saying well you know we can't ask you or won't ask you questions about a leaked document because it's a leaked document and my response was something along the lines of well you know, you've you've created this catch twenty two, where if you take this position that you won't comment on leaked documents, while there is an opportunity to have a change and there's still discussion there, but you will talk about it once it's once the deal's been finalized. Well, by the time the deal's been finalized, it's now finalized, and there's no real opportunity to make a difference. And so it seems to me that the way that you get public confidence in a deal, if you are genuinely confident that it is in the public interest, is to be far more open and transparent about it. And I think ACTA went down uh, largely because of the amount of secrecy that was associated with it. I think, of course, the provisions themselves were problematic. It was a, you know, a product of its time for the reasons we've just been discussing. But that secrecy definitely didn't help and in many ways might have been the difference between having an ACTA today and having something that makes for an interesting Wikipedia page and a bit of history. I think that's a great note to end on, Dr. Geist. Thank you so much for joining us today. 